Chapter 1, Part 1 of The Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer. Translated by William Montgomery. Chapter 1 The Problem. When, at some future day, our period of civilization shall lie, closed and completed, before the eyes of later generations, German theology will stand out as a great, a unique phenomenon in the mental and spiritual life of our time. For nowhere, save in the German temperament, can there be found, in the same perfection, the living complex of conditions and factors, of philosophic thought, critical acumen, historical insight, and religious feeling, without which no deep theology is possible. And the greatest achievement of German theology is the critical investigation of the life of Jesus. What it has accomplished here has laid down the conditions and determined the course of the religious thinking of the future. In the history of doctrine, its work has been negative. It has, so to speak, cleared the site for a new edifice of religious thought. In describing how the ideas of Jesus were taken possession of by the Greek spirit, it was tracing the growth of that which must necessarily become strange to us, and, as a matter of fact, has become strange to us. Of its efforts to create a new dogmatic, we scarcely need to have the history written. It is alive within us. It is no doubt interesting to trace how modern thoughts have found their way into the ancient dogmatic system there to combine with eternal ideas to form new constructions. It is interesting to penetrate into the mind of the thinker in which this process is at work. But the real truth of that which here meets us as history we experience within ourselves. As in the monad of Leibniz, the whole universe is reflected, so we intuitively experience within us, even apart from any clear historical knowledge, the successive stages of the progress of modern dogma from rationalism to ritual this experience is true knowledge all the truer because we are conscious of the whole as something indefinite a slow and difficult movement towards a goal which is still shrouded in obscurity we have not yet arrived at any reconciliation between history and modern thought only between halfway history and halfway thought. What the ultimate goal towards which we are moving will be, what this something is which shall bring new life and new regulative principles to coming centuries, we do not know. We can only dimly divine that it will be the mighty deed of some mighty original genius, whose truth and rightness will be proved by the fact that we, working at our poor half-thing, will oppose him might and main, we who imagine we long for nothing more eagerly than a genius powerful enough to open up with authority a new path for the world, seeing that we cannot succeed in moving it forward along the track which we have so laboriously prepared. For this reason, the history of the critical study of the life of Jesus is of higher intrinsic value than the history of the study of ancient dogma or of the attempts to create a new one. It has to describe the most tremendous thing which the religious consciousness has ever dared and done. 
in the study of the history of dogma german theology settled its account with the past in its attempt to create a new dogmatic it was endeavoring to keep a place for the religious life in the thought of the present in the study of the life of jesus it was working for the future in pure faith in the truth not seeing whereunto it wrought moreover we are here dealing with the most vital thing in the world's history there came a man to rule over the world he ruled it for good and for ill as history testifies he destroyed the world into which he was born the spiritual life of our own time seems like to perish at his hands for he leads to battle against our thought a host of dead ideas a ghostly army upon which death has no power and himself destroys again the truth and goodness which his spirit creates in us so that it cannot rule the world that he continues notwithstanding to reign as the alone great and alone true in a world of which he denied the continuance is the prime example of that antithesis between spiritual and natural truth which underlies all life and all events and in him emerges into the field of history it is only at first sight that the absolute indifference of early christianity towards the life of the historical jesus is disconcerting when paul representing those who recognize the signs of the times did not desire to know christ after the flesh that was the first expression of the impulse of self-preservation by which christianity continued to be guided for centuries it felt that with the introduction of the historic jesus into its faith there would arise something new something which had not been foreseen in the thoughts of the master himself and that thereby a contradiction would be brought to light the solution of which would constitute one of the great problems of the world primitive christianity was therefore right to live wholly in the future with the christ who was to come and to preserve of the historic jesus only detached sayings a few miracles his death and resurrection by abolishing both the world and the historical jesus it escaped the inner division described above and remained consistent in its point of view we on our part have reason to be grateful to the early christians that in consequence of this attitude they have handed down to us not biographies of jesus but only gospels and that therefore we possess the idea and the person with the minimum of historical and contemporary limitations but the world continued to exist and its continuance brought this one-sided view to an end the supramundane christ and the historical jesus of nazareth had to be brought together into a single personality at once historical and raised above time that was accomplished by gnosticism and the logos christology both from opposite standpoints because they were seeking the same goal agreed in sublimating the historical jesus into the supramundane idea the result of this development which followed on the discrediting of eschatology was that the historical jesus was again introduced into the field of view of christianity but in a way that all justification for and interest in the investigation of his life and historical personality were done away with 
Greek theology was as indifferent in regard to the historical Jesus who lives concealed in the Gospels as was the early eschatological theology. More than that, it was dangerous to him, for it created a new supernatural historical gospel, and we may consider it fortunate that the synoptics were already so firmly established that the fourth gospel could not oust them. Instead, the church, as though from the inner necessity of the antithesis which now began to be a constructive element in her thought, was obliged to set up two antithetic gospels alongside of one another. When, at Chalcedon, the West overcame the East, its doctrine of the two natures dissolved the unity of the person, and thereby cut off the last possibility of a return to the historical Jesus. The self-contradiction was elevated into a law, but the manhood was so far admitted as to preserve, in appearance, the rights of history. Thus, by a deception, the formula kept the life prisoner and prevented the leading spirits of the Reformation from grasping the idea of a return to the historical Jesus. This dogma had first to be shattered before men could once more go out in quest of the historical Jesus, before they could even grasp the thought of his existence. That the historic Jesus is something different from the Jesus Christ of the doctrine of the two natures seems to us now self-evident. We can, at the present day, scarcely imagine the long agony in which the historical view of the life of Jesus came to birth. And even when he was once more recalled to life, he was still, like Lazarus of old, bound hand and foot with grave clothes the grave clothes of the dogma of the dual nature. Haza relates, in the preface to his first Life of Jesus in 1829, that a worthy old gentleman, hearing of his project, advised him to treat in the first part of the human, in the second of the divine nature. There was a fine simplicity about that. But does not the simplicity cover a presentiment of the revolution of thought for which the historical method of study was preparing the way? A presentiment which those who were engaged in the work did not share in the same measure? It was fortunate that they did not, for otherwise how could they have had the courage to go on? The historical investigation of the life of Jesus did not take its rise from a purely historical interest. It turned to the Jesus of history as an ally in the struggle against the tyranny of dogma. Afterwards, when it was freed from this pathos, it sought to present the historic Jesus in a form intelligible to its own time. For Bart and Venturini, he was the tool of a secret order. They wrote under the impression of the immense influence exercised by the Order of the Illuminati at the end of the 18th century. Footnote. An order founded in 1776 by Professor Adam Weishaupt of Ingolstadt in Bavaria. Its aim was the furtherance of rational religion as opposed to orthodox dogma. Its organization was largely modeled on that of the Jesuits. At its most flourishing period, it numbered over 2,000 members, including the rulers of several German states. Translator. End footnote. For Reinhard, Hess, Paulus, and the rest of the rationalistic writers, he is the admirable revealer of true virtue, 
which is coincident with right reason. Thus, each successive epoch of theology found its own thoughts in Jesus. That was, indeed, the only way in which it could make him live. But it was not only each epoch that found its reflection in Jesus. Each individual created him in accordance with his own character. There is no historical task which so reveals a man's true self as the writing of a life of Jesus. No vital force comes into the figure unless a man breathes into it all the hate or all the love of which he is capable. The stronger the love or the stronger the hate, the more lifelike is the figure which is produced. For hate as well as love can write a life of Jesus, and the greatest of them are written with hate that of Reimarus, the Wolfenbüttel fragmentist, and that of David Friedrich Strauss. It was not so much hate of the person of Jesus as of the supernatural nimbus with which it was so easy to surround him, and with which he had in fact been surrounded. They were eager to picture him as truly and purely human, to strip from him the robes of splendor with which he had been apparelled, and to clothe him once more in the coarse garments in which he had walked in Galilee. And their hate sharpened their historical insight. They advanced the study of the subject more than all the others put together. But for the offense which they gave, the science of historical theology would not have stood where it does today. Quote, it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Close quote. Reimarus evaded that woe by keeping the offense to himself and preserving silence during his lifetime. His work, The Aims of Jesus and His Disciples, was only published after his death by Lessing. But in the case of Strauss, who, as a young man of twenty-seven, cast the offense openly in the face of the world, the woe fulfilled itself. His life of Jesus was his ruin but he did not cease to be proud of it, in spite of all the misfortune that it brought him. He writes twenty-five years later in the preface to The Conversations of Ulrich von Hutten, quote, I might well bear a grudge against my book, for it has done me much evil. And rightly so, the pious will exclaim. It has excluded me from public teaching in which I took pleasure, and for which I had perhaps some talent. It has torn me from natural relationships and driven me into unnatural ones. It has made my life a lonely one. And yet, when I consider what it would have meant if I had refused to utter the word which lay upon my soul, if I had suppressed the doubts which were at work in my mind, then I bless the book which has doubtless done me grievous harm outwardly, but which preserved the inward health of my mind and heart, and, I doubt not, has done the same for many others also. Close quote. Before him, Bart had his career broken in consequence of revealing his beliefs concerning the life of Jesus, and after him, Bruno Bauer. It was easy for them, resolved as they were to open the way even with seeming blasphemy. But for others, those who tried to bring Jesus to life at the call of love, found it a cruel task to be honest. The critical study of the life of Jesus has been for theology a school of honesty. The world had never seen before, and will never see again, a struggle for truth so full of pain and renunciation 
as that of which the lives of Jesus of the last hundred years contain the cryptic record. One must read the successive lives of Jesus with which Hasse followed the course of the study from the twenties to the seventies of the nineteenth century to get an inkling of what it must have cost the men who lived through that decisive period, really to maintain that courageous freedom of investigation which the great Jenna professor, in the preface to his first Life of Jesus, claims for his researches. One sees in him the marks of the struggle with which he gives up, bit by bit, things which, when he wrote that preface, he never dreamed he would have to surrender. It was fortunate for these men that their sympathies sometimes obscured their critical vision, so that, without becoming insincere, they were able to take white clouds for distant mountains. That was the kindly fate of Hase and Beyschlag. End of chapter 1, part 1